Uh, well, good afternoon, Bo. Um, this is uh, it's so good that you can join us. This is our just our third episode of this series uh, of Ethics Today, and um, I'm, what I've been doing is interviewing various uh, professionals in different disciplines or different areas of, of work, and um, and uh, um, so you are a sociology professor at Center College at the um, Center College, yep, Center College in Danville, Kentucky. Um, and we met probably, I don't know, 23, 24 years ago. We were right, serving together on a, a, a study of uh, uh, church-related colleges and universities. And um, over the years, we've had an opportunity to talk at different times. I've benefited so much from your insights because I don't, I don't interact very much with sociologists. And so um, just uh, that, uh, I know when we first met, we both had young children and we talked about you know, the challenges of raising young children and ways of doing that. And you, it provided some really insightful things. And then we've talked about the various happiness studies that have been done uh, around the world. And you've taught courses, I know, on happiness studies and, and on coffee shops and mm. these sorts of things. So, um, so to kind of set the stage here, I wanted to um, uh, just ask you about uh, social connection and what's, what's happening with social connection uh, at these times, because here we're we're nationwide, we're engaged in social distancing, um, and um, uh, one of the things that's so important in ethics is to develop a sense of the common good, and uh, we develop a sense for the common good out of kind of shared values. That's prior to the to the explicit kind of deliberations that we do, and we tend to draw attention to these in a democracy, like what do we actually talk about, but our our shared sense of what's important comes even before that for, from the ways in which we interact. So I just wanted to ask you, like, as a sociologist, what are you noticing right now about what's going on with our, with our social connections? Right. Well, this is a, a fundamental debate in sociology about whether we are primarily shaped by conflict or primarily by solidarity. And uh, Marx and Weber tend to take the former line, uh, but Durkheim really is our founder on the, we are fundamentally a social species and are characterized by social solidarity. And really when you think about from birth, uh, we wouldn't survive uh, if we weren't not rooted in love and solidarity and ties of family. And those are really more of the model of how people interact. And this becomes clearer in disasters. So in disasters, like the one we're facing now, um, the, the, the sociologists who've done disaster studies uh, distinguished between dissensus disasters and consensus disasters. So when there's a big conflict that produces riots, that leads to a breakdown of social order. That leads to looting and things like that. But when there's a natural disaster that affects us all, like the one we're facing now, our natural reaction of nearly everybody, nearly everybody, um, is to come together, is to support one another, is to engage in acts of altruism, is to look for ways that we can support one another. Now, the particular challenge of the coronavirus is that the way we can support one another is by being apart. Yeah. And, and it is a strain. It is a strain, not just logistically, but, but morally, really, and emotionally, that you know, the thing we want to do is go hug the hurting, to be together and do things. Um, and that's the thing that we can't do. Um, but we found ways around that. 
So uh, there's been a big uptick in the use of social media, the sort of thing we're doing right now, right? That uh, many, many institutions, my own school and probably yours, have gone to Zoom meetings to get together, um, have classes online that use social media to make connections, particularly sort of the, the uh, kind of emotional support parts rather than the, just the academic parts. Um, I am, was a big user of Facebook before. I'm using it even more now and, and post about it, and there's a lot more interaction uh, through it. But then there have been some ingenious ways that people have found to do stuff together apart. Uh, in many neighborhoods, you've probably seen these uh, online, people have regular times of coming out of their houses and talking to one another at a distance. Um, in Kentucky, the, our governor has been a real leader in nightly accounts of how the state is doing, we're all in this together, we'll all get through this together. And one of the things he asked was that people put out green lights at night in honor of those who've died. So on my street, uh, we got green light bulbs first and every night I think more people have added it. So now most people on my street turn on green house lights or porch lights at night to show their solidarity. Uh, likewise, the governor asked initially that church bells ring at 10 o'clock every day, every morning. Um, and that led to a lot of citizens doing the same. So an anonymous person on the street one night left bells for everybody, every household on my street. So every morning at 10, probably half the people come out, even this rainy morning, and ring bells at 10 o'clock for a minute or so. And while we're there, we talk to one another, we see one another. Um, not infrequently, someone who happens to be coming down the street stops and says, what's all this? What's going on? And I think it really is increasing solidarity on the street and, and in a way that will continue after this crisis is over. Um, Could I interrupt you there for a second? Absolutely. I mean, this, this is, um, you know, this has to be something brand new that we've tried to increase solidarity in these ways by these, I would guess, routine symbolic gestures. Or, or shared symbolic gestures because uh, mm -hmm. like the green light is not, yeah. um, we're each doing it in our own home and, and what we just see, but we see from a distance, right? That everybody else is doing it. So it creates a feeling of togetherness, but that you don't have any data on how this sort of thing actually works to build togetherness, right? Because we've never done this sort of thing before, have we? Not exactly like this. You know, in even the, the 1918 flu, there was social closure, they shut down things, there was social closure, so there were ways that people found of supporting one another at a distance. Uh, we, we have a better theory now of what sorts of things you need to protect against. Um, I think right now, uh, you know, there, we've had respiratory illnesses before, and we've had a few just in the last decade or so of a big scale that has led people to wear masks in public. And I think there's not been a full appreciation that that is to protect other people from you. Right. right? It's not to protect yourself from other people. And so when you see it that way, then it is an act of kindness, of social solidarity, of a pro-social act to wear a mask in public. It shows your concern for others. And I think that will grow. 
I expect some ingenious capitalist will come out with masks that are cloth masks, you know, not the N95 masks, that have slogans on them, you know, saying, I care for you, I'm being pro-social, I wear this for you, something like that. Uh, and they'll be widely distributed and it'll be a thing that people can do together. Uh, there's been a lot of ran, uh, uh, amateur mask making, right. uh, first for the hospitals, but now for everybody. Yeah. It, My it, wife it, said it, it's like uh, little women, you know, when they were making bandages for the, the soldiers. And so we have all these non-sewers sewing things um, to contribute to the public good. Yeah, that's even the colorfulness of some of the masks and um, uh, just uh, there's a kind of joy in the expression of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it's not, um, it seems odd still to us. Um, I was listening to a podcast this morning about how in China, especially in East Asia generally, mask wearing is now normal, but that came about from a plague. I mean, a literal pneumonic plague a hundred years ago that they successfully contained by using masks. So now most people have them and they keep them in their houses. And when this sort of thing comes up or when it's just a bad pollution day, lots and lots of people are wearing masks and it becomes normal and it becomes a way of showing who is pro-social and who's not. But you mentioned that you're using Facebook more than you were in the past. You, you've used it before, but and, and, and some of the studies I've seen about social media um, indicate whether it builds community or not depends on how it is used, whether it's used right. to enhance actual connections and friendships or whether choose to uh, stand in or replace uh, more like participation in your community. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I've been noticing uh, it uh, because I've been participating more on Facebook in the last two weeks and I think I have ever before <laughs> um, uh, there, there is, and sometimes there's attempts by some to have real conversations to share something interesting about their life and then in, invite, or, or even politically to share something kind of interesting or potentially controversial, uh, controversial and ask people's opinions. Mm -hmm. But then there's also just the kind of, I would say, um, declaring what team you're on. And so, and, you know, so people um, post complaints about, about a politician or, or another group of people and, and they want the, I think what they want is affirmation that they're on the right side, something like yes. that. And so I'm wondering on the whole is like, is social media, this increased use of social media, is this a good thing for our country and for our kind of coming together in a crisis or is it gonna be a bad thing? Um, I think it's a necessary thing. And it is our task then to make it be mostly for good, though obviously some of it will be for bad. Um, and we're, we're learning that. We're learning the etiquette of how you share and what sort of things are likely to be false and how to avoid scams and how to become more critical uh, consumers of information. Um, the, the team building, the, the, the tribe uh, enunciation is probably inevitable. Um, it, one of my other hats is to teach a family course. And one of the really interesting phenomena of the last uh, generation, not even generation, 20 years maybe, um, is the increasing use of online dating systems to create marriages. Uh, there's an estimate that probably a fifth of marriages now met online. Wow. And those are uh, becoming more politicized. 
Um, so that now uh, the estimate is that politics is one of the top three criteria uh, that people use in even initial sort of who they would might like to date. Um, you've probably seen the stories that people in the Trump administration just can't get a date in Washington. They, they, uh, that they swipe left <laughs> when that fact comes up. Um, and that's, on the one hand, a large, varied, and mobile society is making creative use of technology to tie us to people whom we otherwise wouldn't know, right? We're not limited by geographic propinquity of who might be our friends or who we might connect with. Um, just as you and I are doing now, right, between Wisconsin and Kentucky, uh, not a conversation we could have very often otherwise. And I, I've told my classes, there's no idea so crazy that 10,000 people can't believe it. And now the internet means they can find one another. So yes, on the far fringes, the social media has brought together people that we'd rather didn't find one another. But in the whole big middle, um, I think it's vastly useful. And, and the fact that young people just flock to it, um, they've come to regard Facebook as just for old people. Yeah. Um, they use uh, not text-based media, which worries me a bit, right? So. Instagram is their main way of communicating. Um, Instagram is not an excellent medium for conveying complex ideas or really any ideas at all. Uh, nonetheless, um, that they use it for instantaneous communication creates some kind of a bond that can then be used in real life. And I think that's a, a, as positive a development as we're gonna get from that. We'll have to learn how to do it better, but we'll, that will be positive. Well, if I mean that's that brings up another point too, is that uh, if social media, um, and especially the ways in which it tends to be used more by the young, is, is uh, it's more image based, which uh, pretty effectively maybe creates and both conveys and creates shared attitudes, uh, but they don't necessarily form this basis for deliberation, which is what we want in a democracy, right? Because you don't. You don't get the practice at deliberation within that form of communication. Yeah. I have uh, spent a lot of time focusing on uh, how deliberation occurs, right? I, 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 my studies on happiness have led to studies of centrism, right? What, what is it like to be not polarized, to be a, a rational considerer of both sides, of seeking to compromise that works effectively? Because realizing there will always be opposing teams, there will always be opposing ideologies, they're really just utterly irreducible. And in a democracy especially, we need to have that skill of compromise and working together and establishing some kind of modus vivendi. And that has led me to look at the studies of how people become ideological and how they become partisan. And the bare fact is that most people don't understand ideology at all that barely a fifth have any basic understanding of what politically informed people regard as the big struggle, the huge issues. And that, on the other hand, nearly everybody, 80 plus percent, are clearly partisan. And so in that gap between the fifth who understand political issues and the 80% who are politically uh, aligned, uh, most of that is following the tribe. So the people who are gonna have the reasoned argument, um, they're a minority, 
They're a leading minority, they're a strategic minority, they're followed by others. And social media is good for them to have that discussion. Now, a lot of it, as you note, is virtue signaling, tribe making, um, but it is also the place in which the people who are capable of seeking to have a reasoned discussion can do it at a great distance from one another. Yeah, well, I, I think part of being a, um, a centrist is, I mean, we're, um, I think even most people identify as centrists lean right or left, but tend to be much more willing to uh, be critical yeah. of the politicians they, they endorse or support, right? And like, this is really critical for a democracy too, that you're critical of your own side. Yeah, yeah, and, and one of the things when the, I was reading just this week about the nuances of who's a moderate, that most people who choose moderate on a seven point Likert scale um, really don't know very much about politic politics at all, right? It's kind of the escape from choosing a position. Whereas the partisan identification that most of the people who are independents lean one way or the other and lean that way pretty consistently. Um, so it's, it's more a way of signaling the team that you'll normally follow. And it takes extraordinary circumstances for you to switch sides. Now, we are in one of those moments now when quite a number of people, you know, who thought they were um, core conservative Republicans are finding that they don't have a home in the current party. And I think that is one of the things that is being worked out in a public way in social media and otherwise. Yeah, but uh, that often though happens with the party in power, right? That um, the party in power, um, there, there's a surge of support for it, but then there's a, a distancing, especially by people who kind of end up being more centrist of saying, but they disagree with a lot of the policies or the actions of the, of the party they had supported. Is that right? Or Yeah, which way you'll get more criticism from. So Obama got criticism more from the left of the party than the center, whereas Trump gets more criticism from the center of his party than from the right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. Um, but I want to switch direction just a little bit. Um, sure. I remember the, the first time we met, um, we were talking about teaching children the difference between needs and wants. And you mm -hmm. were talking about how you were raising your, your children, uh, not to, not to be overly materialistic and, um, and how you didn't go shopping very often, but you had, Taken, I think it was your daughter who was maybe three or four years old to a Walmart, which is something ah, yes. you didn't do very often. And she was looking around in amazement and she pointed down one of the aisles and she said, Look, Daddy, there's another aisle full of things we don't need. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, a happy story. Uh, she is now a 30 something married mom. Wow. <laughs> that, that little girl. Wow, that's <laughs> and uh, and um, is a very. Um, careful and heavily researched shopper, um, but especially for useful things for the baby. Uh, and I, I appreciate that. And uh, my kids, you know, vary in uh, how much they have drawn upon that legacy, but they all do it seriously. Um, I, I told them and I told my, my students over the years, I have a long list of thank you, Lord, I don't have to. And it begins with own a boat. 
and my apologies to you, Rick. I know where you yeah, have I, a lot to do. I, I or own a second home, right? Or go skiing or any of those things. Um, and partly I'm helped by the fact that I'm a nerd. That's how, where professors come from. You know, what I like to do is go to the coffee house and read books. And so I'm not feeling a loss of those things. Um, it also is practically useful um, to see that the value of life, the th stuff that makes us happy, is the quality of our relationships with other people, is the core finding of the happiness research, is that once you're basically financially secure and basically healthy, the thing that determines whether you're happy or not is the quality of your relations with friends and family, whether you have work that you think is in some way meaningful, and often this overlaps with the next point, which is you do things with other people that serve a cause larger than yourself. And that I think is particularly where a focus on material goods is just not satisfying. It's not one of the things that tends to make people happy. Whereas, go, to go back to our initial topic, working together for the common good, particularly in the face of a shared disaster, is a thing that makes people happy. And I think the people who spend this uh, crisis time trying to do things with other people for the common good will be happier and healthier and their immune systems will be better and they'll live longer than the people who were fearful and spent their time saying I all of the restrictions and I want other people to do stuff that I am served by. Um, that's, um, and this is something, of course, that we can uh, introduce to children also, right? And, and mm -hmm. bring them aboard in this right away. I, I, I talk to so many people right now who are using this as a time to kind of reevaluate their life and reset priorities. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you have uh, parents with their children's at home trying to figure out, like, what's, what's really important for us as we think of family activities, but also as I take a, more of a role in educating my children. Yeah. Uh, in the local community effort to make masks, one of my neighbors taught her daughter to sew so that they could make masks together. And they have now become very adept. Um, in fact, the one that I wear in public was a gift from them that I, I think the daughter made. Um, another friend, a former student of mine, who's now a mom with three kids at home, mom and husband, who said that um, she's coming to see her life as more integrated, more whole, the way they're living now, right? That they're all in the house, they're working together. Of course, there's tensions from five people, particularly teenagers, sharing a life. But it's really it's been good for the family to be that together. Now, I was reading research that other places that have had lockdowns, when they come out of them, there's a spike in divorces. Mm. And honestly, I think that's probably going to happen in America too, that, that couples who were not used to living together all day, um, some of those underlying tensions will lead to uh, either a realization of a thing that was there all along or an impulsive decision that I can't stand this anymore. Um, I'm happy to report that my bride and I are having a wonderful time being together, working together. We are blessed with not having any dependents in the house, either older or younger, uh, and can just worry about ourselves. But uh, that um, taking it as an opportunity to do things with your kids and even more valuable to have your kids do things with you 
that really matter, that are meaningful, that are part of your work, uh, I think can't help but be good. Well, Bo, this, for the most part, this has been a very hopeful discussion. So <laughs> that's my job. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. And I, I look forward to uh, continuing our, uh, our ongoing conversation about happiness and social connection uh, over many years to come. So. Yes, I, I was looking forward to the, your planned fall conference, and who knows whether anything that we've planned is going to happen. Um, but uh, I, I hope that uh, you'll continue down this line of, uh, of upbuilding things that people can do that sociology is well designed to contribute to. <laughs> well, well, you're you're good evidence of that. So, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, and have a have a great day. And you also. <laughs>